All right, guys, we'll go ahead and get started. I'll open us up in prayer, and then we'll hit the ground running, all right? Holy Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the opportunity to gather together and consider you and consider your plans for us. And we just pray that you would speak to us this morning through your word, that your spirit would guide our thoughts and our words. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, to open up just a few minutes and give you the opportunity, did anyone have the opportunity this week to uh, read through Romans 8, uh, 26 through 39 and think about the questions that I had given last week? And if not, that's okay. Anybody? Yes, sir. You want to share? No, just the cooperation among friends. Y'all are all in agreement. You have Christ interceding and the Holy Spirit interceding for us in different ways. But Absolutely. It's just a beautiful uh, cooperation yes. in our, our salvation. Yes. And it's keeping us. Mm-hmm. So the cooperation of the entire Trinity in our salvation. It's good. Anyone else? Okay, so I'm going to start with reading this case study because we're going to kind of stick with uh, Jeff and Sarah throughout the whole uh, duration of the class and try to apply the things that we're learning to a case that can maybe help it become more practical to you. Uh, so we'll start with a case study, and then today we're going to be talking about uh, the idea that the Father has planned, and that a part of the redemptive narrative includes the first person of the Trinity, and that he has planned uh, and written this story. But let's start with the case study. Jeff and Sarah have been married for 14 years. Sarah has disclosed that for the majority of their marriage, she has lived in a chronic state of fear and anxiety. <clears throat> she says that she is constantly walking on eggshells to prevent Jeff from going into a rage, especially when their two children are present. Her attempts to protect the children have often failed. Jeff has never physically abused Sarah, but he has used physical intimidation and control by blocking doorways when she wants to leave or by destroying her possessions, such as a special photo album she put together, some artwork that she's completed, and even some dishes. Sarah also says she is always second-guessing herself because Jeff is very crafty in convincing her that his anger is her fault. Initially, Jeff attempted to blame shift in counseling by accusing Sarah, Sarah of passive-aggressive behavior. He framed his anger as being caused by her emotional and physical neglect and her unwillingness to submit to him in all things. Eventually, Jeff began to take responsibility for his anger and seems to be making genuine attempts towards change. Currently, Jeff is becoming pr- frustrated, though, because after three months of working towards loving his wife in a gentle and patient manner, Sarah continues to be extremely fearful of moving towards Jeff physically or emotionally. She avoids much interaction with him. Jeff is beginning to question if she, uh, if she will ever move beyond her fears and concerns. Sarah is very confused. She believes God wants her to work to restore her relationship, but feels paralyzed. She feels she's too emotionally broken to engage Jeff. Jeff and Sarah are both professing Christians, but their church is taking a hands-off stance in this situation, leaving the process in the hands of a counselor. So, tough situation, right? And for me personally, uh, it's these kind of things. Is the theology, are the higher ideas of theology relevant to Jeff and Sarah? 
You know, we can, we can kind of take this ivory tower stance and just have a lot of head knowledge, but are we able to bring it into the practical realities of life? And that's what I'm hoping we can do this morning. Um, <clears throat> I'll start with this quote by John Frame. Our world is a world that is exhaustively meaning, meaningful because it is the expression of God's wisdom. Among human beings, interpretation is not the work of trying to assess for the first time the significance of uninterpreted facts. Rather, ours is a work of secondary interpretation, the interpretation of God's interpretation. So things aren't just existing in a vacuum. God has created all things with intention, and things only find their meaning as we look at life and creation and circumstance through the lens of God. And so... One of the things that drives interpretation is what we believe. Beliefs are very powerful. Um, And so I want to show you something. We're going to try to apply this here in just a minute. A, B, C, D. Just very simple. Um, A stands for activating event. So activating event is just the situation that you find yourself in. So for Jeff, he's he's in a marriage right now where his wife's very afraid of him. Uh, For Sarah, she's in a a marriage where she's been abused. Uh, So that would be the activating event. The activating event could be you sitting at work, you talking to your spouse, you talking to your child, anything that you're, uh, any situation that you find yourself in. uh, B is belief. C is the emotional consequence. So anytime you have an emotion, that tends to be that what we would uh, conceptualize as the consequence. D is, stands for dispute. So the way we typically reason and rationalize in our lives is we assume <clears throat> that my activating event is causing my emotional issue. Um, so if a person is at work and their boss just gave them a tough review uh, and they're having major anxiety and a huge amount of panic, panic is the consequence. And they assume because my boss just gave me a couple of of tough recommendations in my review, I'm now having panic attacks. But that's not an appropriate way to interpret what's going on. The reason the person is having a panic attack is because of what they believe about what their boss has said, what they believe about uh, the gravity of his words, what they believe about maybe uh, their their own identity being too locked into their uh, job role so that if it becomes threatened, they think they're losing their identity. So it's not so much. Now, might this create a sense of anxiety? Sure. We would expect sitting in front of a boss for a review, you might have a sense of anxiety. But when it, but when it uh, deteriorates into a place of panic and you find yourself struggling with paralyzing anxiety, we want to look at what are we believing because what we believe shapes how we interpret life and reality. And we'll come back to that here in just a minute. Um, one of the things that I want to highlight this morning is that uh, God's plan is eternal. This plan that we're talking about uh, did not start at creation. Uh, the plan is eternal. Um, the story of redemption did not begin when God brought forth creation out of nothing. The story and God's plans in that story transcend the space-time continuum. This plan is eternal. So John 17, 1 through 5, if you guys want to turn there. 
We'll look at a couple of passages here. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. And so this is Jesus talking to the Father and the language, especially at the end of that, we can see that God, uh, Christ accomplished work that he was given prior to creation. And he's asking the Father to glorify him in his presence with the same glory that he had before the world existed. So this this language points to eternity, past, that you and I, every day of our lives, we're living in a plan that has existed even prior to creation. John 6, 37 and 40. And this is again Jesus speaking. All the Father, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So in this passage, you can see... um, Before the world was created, before the foundations of the world, uh, the Father gave to the Son the saints that would ultimately come to Him. This is eternity past. And there's this beautiful promise that every single soul that was given to the Son prior to the foundations of the world would come to Him. There's no question mark. There's no arbitrary possibility of, of that falling apart. There's this beautiful... Uh, hopeful reality that if God has, if we've been given to Christ, we will come. And then this idea that when we do come, we won't be driven away, that Jesus will accept us. And, and then also it points to eternity uh, in the future that uh, God will raise us up on the last day. And so in this story, it's an eternal story again, and we are part of that story. God's plan is also about his own glory. And often in, in my setting, in counseling, in my own life as a husband, as a father, <clears throat> this is where I tend to get off track. You see, my beliefs begin to get skewed because I forget that all of this is unfolding for the glory of God. When my son is arguing with me, uh, sure, I need to deal with the here and now realities of, of discipline. But when I walk away from that conversation, I need to remember something is going on here that is aimed at pointing me to the glory of God. And even in how I communicate to my son in that discipline, it's not about me being right. It's not about me, him following my rule. 
Uh, it's not about him being obedient ultimately and primarily. All those things are important, but that cannot be my driving uh, motive in discipline. My driving motive in discipline is there is a God in this room and he deserves glory even in this stressful moment. Isaiah 48, 8 through 11. Let's look at this. <clears throat> and this kind of language is all throughout Scripture. Um, we'll just look at this one example. Isaiah 48, verses 8 through 11. <clears throat> you have never heard, you have never known, from of old, your ear has not been opened. For I knew that you would surely deal treacherously and that from before birth, you were called a rebel. For my name's sake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you that I may not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace affliction of affliction. For my, own, for my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory, I will not give to another. And again, this is, this is a single example, but you can, you can hear in the language that God's plans and purposes in dealing with Israel in this particular passage in the manner that he chooses is because of his namesake. It's because of his praise. It's for his own sake and it's for his own glory. And again, <clears throat> it's very important that we not just make this something that we think about when we're sitting in a church service or reading scripture. Uh, last week I used the word awareness. That's a big word for me as a counselor because uh, my heart so often uh, blinds me from the awareness that I am really swimming in the presence of God. God is omniscient. There's not a moment in my life when I am not in his presence. Um, and sometimes we think, you know, we're in the presence of God only when we're doing things like praying or reading scripture. But we're always in his presence, which there's implication there that, that should drive what I'm doing. And so my awareness, being aware of God's presence moment by moment um, requires then that, that I try my very best by God's spirit and grace to operate with his glory in mind. There's a wonderful, <clears throat> wonderful um, prayer in, in Habakkuk uh, 3.17. And if you are familiar with the story of Habakkuk, Habakkuk is praying um, to God that God would bring the people of Israel back to him. Um, and that's a beautiful prayer. And he was hoping for revival. And that's a, it's a beautiful hope. But God shows Habakkuk <clears throat> how he's going to choose to bring the people back to himself. And it's not through re revival. It's through war. It's through destruction. And I can only imagine if I were Habakkuk praying such a beautiful prayer. And the Lord responds with, yes, I'm going to answer your prayer and it's, it's going to be extremely painful, the, the means that I choose to bring you back to myself. <clears throat> but at the end of Habakkuk, you read this beautiful prayer, and I'll paraphrase it. And Habakkuk says, God, if you take away all my cattle, there's no cattle in the stalls. If you 
take away all my food, if you take away all my family, I will rejoice in you, my sovereign Lord, because you are my strength. And I know at the end of the day, you will make my feet like the feet of deer. And I will again tread on high places. That was a man who seems, at least through that prayer, to be enamored with the glory of God. The glory of his own prosperity, the glory of his own survival, the glory of his own good was not driving that prayer. It was the glory of a good God. It was the glory of a faithful God that even if everything he had was going to be taken away from him, he could trust this sovereign, loving God. We see through the person of Jesus Christ, this exemplified beautifully and perfectly. This idea of living for the glory of God. John four thirty four. <clears throat> Sorry, I've got a, <clears throat> a frog here. Uh, John four thirty four. Guys, by the way, usually I would have all of this written down. My computer crashed this week, so it, it kind of got in the way of some things. So I'm having to actually turn to these passages, and I, I do apologize. Uh, so, uh, John four thirty four. This is Jesus. Jesus said to them, My food is to do, the, to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? primary thing here is, is Christ's heart. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Jesus was driven by glorifying his God, by doing the work that he was given. We see it again in John 17, verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the Son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. Jesus was about the glory of the Father. Um, John seventeen four, <clears throat> just a little lower. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And again, we, we looked at this a minute ago. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I have had before the world existed. And so we know that part of the process of sanctification or primarily the part of sanctification is that God is transforming us to live and operate and think and perceive the world as Jesus did to live a life as Jesus did and it's clear that these are just three passages but it's very clear if you read the gospels that Jesus was uh infatuated with the glory of God. It drove him to the, to the very cross where he chose to give his own life. It was the glory of God. God's glory was central to the teaching and writings of the disciples and the apostles. First uh, Corinthians 10 31. You guys are all familiar with that. Uh, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And I love that passage because what it does, it removes the idea of the mundane. It removes the idea of the meaningless. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Something as simple as eating and enjoying the taste 
and appreciating the supply that God has given us brings glory to us. Just being aware in the moment or whatever you do, cleaning house, um, mowing the lawn. There's nothing mundane in this plan, in this story that we've been talking about. And Paul is pointing us to this awareness. Be aware when you're speaking to your spouse. Be aware when you're going back to that same workplace that feels so uh, meaningless in the, in the bigger scheme of things. We really don't live in a, in a universe of the sa- secular and the sacred. As believers, it's all sacred. Every moment of our lives uh, can be lived for the sacred glory of God. 1 Peter 4, 10 and 11. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. So I think you can, you can hear the theme here that uh, this plan is eternal. It's very intentional. And this plan is, is, is about the glory of one person, God. And it's, it's when we tend to make it about the glory of ourselves or the glory of our own agenda that life can get turned upside down. And I think when we begin to do that, we also put a huge burden on our shoulders because suddenly uh, life really begins to lose its existential meaning if it's about me, this finite person. There's no real purpose. Um, Even though he was a secular philosopher, uh, John Paul Sartre was an honest philosopher. And at the end of the day, his final conclusion that uh, a point has no meaning whatsoever unless it has an infinite reference point. And so John Sartre died realizing, according to his own philosophy, his life had no meaning because he didn't believe there was an infinite reference point. But for us, we have an infinite reference point, and it's God. And one of the things that brings meaning through that reference point is the fact that we get to wake up every single day of our lives asking God, help me to be an instrument of your glory. Whatever comes my way this day, whatever stress may come, whatever challenge I may face, whatever gift you may give me, please help me become an instrument of your glory as I interact with this life and with your plan. And so I want to go back to Jeff and Sarah. And let's look at ABCD. Okay? And I want you guys... I would love to hear you interact just a little bit with me on this, okay? Um, Let's apply this this whole idea of belief and interpretation of reality. Uh, Let's apply it to Jeff's anger and to the glory of God, okay? Activating event. Sarah doesn't cook dinner on time. And historically, this has been his pet peeve. He works all day. She's a stay-at-home mom. Right? Has no real job. Right? That's a sad statement. 
But this was his mindset, and when she, you know, she has nothing to do all day, why, is it, why isn't dinner finished? He walks in, he goes into a rage. Activating event, dinner's not ready. What, what probably is he believing that would cause his anger, his rage, his criticism? She doesn't think I'm worth it. She doesn't love me enough to do this one thing. Okay. So let, let, let me repeat that because that would still apply here. Let's say she's actually passive aggressive and she purposely didn't fix dinner on time. What we're about to do would still apply to that. Good. Maybe he thinks she's lazy. She th- uh, he thinks she's lazy. He's be- he believes that she's just a lazy person. Good. She, she's stupid. Someone else? She's not living up to his expectations. So, I deserve to have my dinner on time. All right, you guys are getting this. Yes, ma'am, one more. <laughs> Come on, guys. <laughs> That's a good point. <laughs> He's the king, and he, should, he deserves to be served and have his needs met. One guy. Does one guy have... <laughs> yeah. One of the things here... Oh, well, actually two comments. The, the, the first one is some, some of us just are accomplished at going straight from A to D. The other is that um, in, in a paradigm like that, in, in a work environment where someone lives and breathes, there are usually defined outcomes and objectives, and, and sometimes you're able to focus on those and be a little bit like, not as broad the mm-hmm. breadth of what the lady at home is dealing with. Right. And so <clears throat> there's an assumption of, of, well, if I can throw off 57 items and focus on three, why can't you? Yeah. So. Why can't you focus on this one thing right. that you know is very important to me when I get home? Okay. All of that was very good. And we all have these things... With, these kind of pre-conscious beliefs about people and about situations that we don't really, we don't walk around saying them all the time. But when something like this happens and dinner's not made, suddenly that rises to the top. I deserve dinner. She doesn't care. Okay. So we need to help. We need to help Jeff here. He's got some problems. So we need to help him dispute the lies and become aware of what we just talked about, the glory of God. And so if, if, and this is a guy who struggled with intense anger his whole life in his marriage, but he's, he's seems to be repentant and he seems to be wanting to make some changes. What beliefs would be, what beliefs might he begin to adopt about the glory of God in that moment of walking in no dinner on the table? What are some things he he, we would want to encourage him to begin to believe that would temper his, gray, his anger and might even give him a heart of love and gentleness. Grace towards his wife. Maybe she's had a horrible day. Ooh, that's First a... thing he says when he walks in, where's my dinner? Why is it not on the table? How about, how was your day? That's good. Maybe some things got in her way that prevented her from having it there. So shift from your prideful self yes. to your spouse. It's good. 
just kind of tagging on to that, but the idea of <clears throat> him coming home with, in his own mind, the idea of being a servant to his family Good. instead of a ruler. A very different approach. Good. Step in and help facilitate the needs of the whole family at that moment. Yeah. So, so the belief that my wife deserves to be asked the question, how was your day? My wife deserves to be served. Is that tied to the glory of, is that much closer to living in this awareness of, hey, that's worship. And I'm exhausted and I'm stressed and, and I had the worst day of my life at work, but my wife deserves to be served. She deserves to be asked the simple question, how was your day? And that's me loving her as Christ loves me. And even though I'm exhausted and don't really feel like doing it, I get to engage in worship. Just by a simple question, how was your day? It's powerful. Other thoughts? Yes, sir. I'll back it up just a little bit. I completely agree with you. But with today's technology, uh, when you're leaving work, it's pretty easy to pick the phone up. Say, how's your day going? Anything I can do to help you? And then maybe she can say, refrigerator broke, kids are horrible, life sucks. (laughs) (laughs) And he can say, no worries, I'll pick something up on the way home. That's good. That's very good. Yes, sir. So I think about one, one, one perspective is you had a bad day, I had a bad day, and let's decide you had a worse day. Mm. Try to be you know, sympathetic to one another, but I would even step back further than that and say uh, our concept of a bad day is informed by some expectation of what is normal or what is deserved. Yeah. It's wonderful. It's wonderful. And I, let me repeat it. So they've asked me to repeat the, the, the answers here because so, this recording. Just walking into the house with this mindset of gratitude that all things been given, even the chaotic home that I'm walking into is a gift of God. And it's a gift of a God with a, a good and loving heart. It's a great thought. Yes, sir. Uh, even asking, what is God trying to teach me about myself? Excellent. Not so much on... I mean, I'll leave that about, about her, but what is God trying to teach me about my own heart? And, and focusing a little on his own heart. Uh, That's good. So that, that is uh, the idea of asking the question, as I walk into my home or as I make contact with my wife, in that moment, I am in the redemptive story and God is at work in me. What is he doing? Excellent. That's a, that's a great belief and a great thought. Um, so simple as just saying God is the one that's doing the work in me so God help me right now I really want to snap on this woman yes just help me stay calm yes help me not to go off on her that's good so this uh, this constant humble dependence on God uh, this idea that if I'm if I'm going to do the things that I know are right and good I desperately need the help of the Lord one more uh, you too, you too. Go next. Yeah. I wonder if they 
Mm. Yes. Yeah. Has my anger paralyzed her? And what can I do to help that today as I walk in the door? And again, the glory of God. The glory of God. One more. Yes, ma'am. In, in this, I don't envy the men that husbands in the room because I used to think, well, I'm supposed to submit good grief, what a burden. But mm. I really think the men have the greater responsibility because their obligation is to be as Christ to the church. And I know we're all supposed to be Christ-like, but when, you know, when my husband walks in the door after work, I mean, he's, he's got a responsibility, you know, he's that I wouldn't want to take on, you know, having to be Christ to the church. And, mm. you know, that's got to be tougher than my part. Mm. Yeah, it's a, bi- it's a big role. Um, and I, but I think husbands and wife both have enormous responsibilities in that. And, and if we had time, we would apply this whole thing to Sarah because there's some things that she needs, right? She's driven by beliefs about her husband that we would want to help her reorient. Say that again. <laughs> it would be it would be a long task. <clears throat> it would be a long task of helping her um, walk in in the the mindset that Dr. Ed Welch outlines in a book called "When People Are Big and God Is Small," where. We have to, and it, this would probably be a very long process, and the husband would have to be very patient, but l- teaching her what it looks like in her belief system to live in the fear of the Lord, in the awe of God, not the fear of her husband. Um, all right, we'll, we'll move on from there, but you guys are getting the picture, and, and I want you to be able to take this thing out of here for your own life, that realizing as we read in that very beginning, interpretation, right? We're, we're not, for the first time, interpreting that moment. We have, to re- we have to interpret things according to God's interpretation. And that moment of walking in the house and the dinner not being there is not about walking in the house and the dinner not being there. That's a skewed distortion. It's in, in part, it's about God's glory. Okay, and so hopefully you can take that out of here and whatever you're facing in your own life. Just remember, if I'm feeling this terrible emotion today, God cares about that. And this isn't a silver bullet. I'm not saying it's just going to change like a light switch. We're we're much more complicated than that. Um, uh, But when you're facing whatever that might be to remember, hey, the intensity of my experience right now might be... uh, partially driven by what I'm believing in this moment and in part what I'm believing about God's glory. Okay? This is totally paralleling for me uh, my life as a professional person uh, that defines in my mind who I am Mm. and my secret beliefs of whether I can do it or not Mm -hmm. and my response to my authority and it's helping me to see this is so totally applying not only to a marriage. Good. Good. That's the hope. Okay? Um, all right, let's move forward. We, another thing that we good Reformed Presbyterians are probably aware of is that God's plan reveals His sovereignty. The sovereignty of God. 
God's sovereignty brings form and order and purpose to everything that exists and guides every aspect of human transformation. Um, I'm going to skip over to uh, Romans 8, 28 through 30. So you guys, I had given, that was part of what we left off with last week. Um, Romans 8, 28 through 30. Um, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and those whom he predestined, he also called and those whom he called, he also justified and those whom he justified, he also glorified. So in this, uh, we see that every detail of life is part of God's sovereign plan towards a specific good. So we want to be very careful because the culture really uh, mutilates this passage by making the good arbitrary. God will bring something good out of this. Don't worry about it. That's a very trite and insensitive comment, right? But it's this idea that that some good out there, we're not sure exactly what, but I'm sure God will bring something good out of this. But properly interpreted, this good is not arbitrary. It's specific. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. And here's the good. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. So the particular good that God is bringing about in all things, including our example at the dinner table, is that we through and through to the uttermost would be conformed into the very image of Christ. That we in this life would begin to image glory as we're transformed into people that are driven by the glory of God and driven by a love of God and a love of people. And that's all things. Again, isn't Paul amazing? He, He just doesn't allow the mundane in everything. When you're sitting in a traffic jam, someone cuts you off in traffic. Um, any little detail of your life, You've got to remember you're part of a plan that's eternal. And that plan is geared towards you being called. You you being given to Christ before the foundations of the world. And then you being called by God for the specific purpose of being transformed into something beautiful. We always... another, Another way to just look at things we have the horizontal and the vertical we should never just be operating in the horizontal awareness and so Jeff when he comes in he's mad about dinner he's just operating here okay but we always have to operate at the intersection of these two We always have to operate with the vertical in mind. That's what we're talking about here. 
an awareness of God's glory, an awareness of God's sovereignty, awareness that anything that I'm experiencing in this moment, there's a divine plan, particularly for me, that something good would come out of this and that good being that I would be conformed into the image of Jesus. Uh, a great example of this uh, with Paul, 2 Corinthians 1, 8 and 9. Um, so you, you'll hear Paul talk about the vertical and it sounds like the vertical was extremely stressful, extremely uh, painful and scary. But Paul in, uh, did not stop with just thinking about the vertical. He immediately had this awareness of the vertical. Uh, of, he didn't just think of the horizontal. He had an awareness of the vertical. Um, chapter 1, verse 8. For we do not want you to be ignorant, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but, and here's the awareness of the vertical, this horizontal thing, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. So Paul was looking at these calamities and he didn't just stop at the, at the horizontal. He remembered the vertical that God, even in almost killing me, was reminding me. He's there and he's faithful. That was 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. One more, one more thing here. This, this, path, this verse 30, often referred to as the golden chain of redemption. Um, in, in Romans, Romans 8, 30. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Do you notice the past tense of it all? He called, he predestined, he called, he justified, he glorified. The plan is set in place and nothing can change it. The plan is set in place from eternity past and nothing can change that plan for you. That even in the mind of God, your glorification is as good as done. That brings hope to me. When I'm blowing it big time, for the hundredth time, as a husband, as a dad, as a counselor, there's something hopeful to say, I, I can't mess up the plan. This plan has existed long before I got here and it's as good as done and God will accomplish his perfect work in me. John Frame again, I'm quoting him a lot today. On this verse, the logic is inevitable. Anyone whom God savingly foreknows, he predestines to be conformed to the likeness of Christ. And anyone so predestined receives an effectual call from God sometime in this life, a summons into fellowship with Christ in order that he cannot decline. Those whom he calls, he justifies and he declares them righteous for Jesus sake. And those he justifies, he glorifies. No one who is foreknown, predestined, called and justified can escape glorification. It's wonderful news for us. And we could apply the ABCD to Jeff again. We don't have time, but how the, the sovereignty of the Lord comes into play. And what you said a minute ago, that what I'm, what's God doing in me right now as I'm experiencing this struggle? Uh, the final thing 
we don't have time to cover it, but I would not want to miss this. Um, God's plan is an expression of his love. We have to remember that. When we think of sovereignty, if we just have sovereignty, that could be scary. This is, this, this is, this is a sovereign love. And a love that is sovereign. Love drives everything that's going on in our life. And sometimes we can't, you know, we see through a dark glass and it looks a little murky and we can't put all the pieces together and, and we never want to minimize anybody's suffering because sometimes it doesn't make sense and, and we may never ultimately come to uh, just a final resolution to what's going on in our lives. But something that we can always, always be sure of is that anything we're experiencing in life is driven out of the treasure trove of love that God has for us. Um, God's plan culminates in Him saving His people and throughout the rest of their lives conforming them to the image of His glory because He loves them. Okay? Let me pray. Father, we thank You for Your goodness. We thank you for showing yourself to us that we would live lives to glorify you, to remember the love that you have for us, to remember we're not, we're not living in a meaningless universe. You give us meaning. And I pray for everyone here today that you would help us all interpret life through the gospel lens, that that you, by your Spirit, would continually bring us into this awareness of the greater plan. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.